Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the Jeff Green to my Larry David, Brandon. I really wish I got that more because everything I've seen of Larry David has been brilliant, but I've watched the show like three times. Dude, dude, dude. You I have know. to. You have to I watch know. that show. It's a classic. I know it buddy. is. I know it is. Everything I've seen of it's hilarious. He's a genius. It's a classic. But it's a classic. How you doing, Tony? Good. I'm, you know, in the middle of this kitchen remodeling project, and I was um I was listening to the audiobook of Walden by Henry David Thoreau, you know, very famous book about him moving out to a cabin in the woods and living there. And uh he goes through his entire um list of every everything he said a man should know how much his house cost to build so he goes through everything what he spent on lumber what he spent on doorknobs what he spent on windows everything okay yeah grand total for him to build his cabin on walden pond 28 dollars 12 and a half cents <laughs> wait what how <laughs> what year is this written in <laughs> oh 1860s or something like that <laughs> all right that makes more sense. 1830s? No, maybe like yeah, more like 1830s. Um yeah, I <laughs> dude, I can't buy a 2 by 4 at Home Depot for that much. No, you can barely get nails for like a project <laughs> for that much. Cuz lumber is so high, man. It's it's really well crazy. It sounds so, like an exciting book. It's a pretty good book, but uh, the kitchen project is keeping me very busy. Going up north this weekend to plant a bunch of trees. Got to go pick up uh, 300 trees at a nursery tomorrow morning, and then we'll be planting them uh, over the weekend. So, yeah, looking forward to that. That's really cool. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? What's up? What's going on in your world? Uh, I'm going to be uh, doing the thing that a bunch of uh, Minnesota people do in the, at this time of year, looking for morel mushroom. Oh, nice. Yeah, Where's yeah, your already, secret spot? Tell me so I can oh, geolocate you. Oh, sure. You. Um, actually, the latitude, <laughs> longitude. Yeah, I'll send you the coordinates. Uh, it's so funny because if people don't know, I mean, every every place has got its thing. But like people in Minnesota, they guard their morale spots. I know. I uh, Just a couple of days ago, I went to one of my spots and saw a dude walking out with a bag full of them. Dang. Heartbroken, heartbroken. But it happens. It does happen because it's public land you're hitting. I exactly. I, I keep thinking there must be morels on our land in in central Minnesota, and I'll look this weekend, but I've never found any. Keep an eye out for those elm trees. Yeah, see, that's our problem. We don't really have elms. We have a lot of oaks and a lot of pines, but not really any elms because they're in. They they often grow on, in rotting, fallen elm trees, right? Uh, usually near the base on the ground. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, I will keep an eye out. You should. You never know, man. You never know. Well, you should be attentive and pay close attention, which is my segue to our guest today. <laughs> Smooth. Thank you very much. Douglas Christie wrote a book that I have assigned for a class I'm teaching this summer. It's called The Blue Sapphire of the Mind Toward a Contemplative Ecology. So he is trying to marry his study of the contemplative uh, spiritual traditions in Christianity, which is what he got his PhD in, but also his great love of nature. He, you know, he, 
he does talk in in the beginning of our conversation about how he grew up in the Pacific Northwest, but he kind of took, you know, the wilderness in which he was growing up for granted a little bit. And it was later in his mind, sorry, later in his life when he tried to connect the two. And this book is really the outgrowth of that, of his connection between his, his longing and desire for nature, plus his great study of the contemplative traditions in monastic Christianity. So that's what the book's about. It's kind of perfect for this podcast. And uh, yeah, he and I have a wide-ranging conversation about the work he's done and, and, and what we can learn from the uh, monastic Christians who went before us. So Brandon, with, unless unless you've got anything to add, no, no nuggets of joy. It was a it was a really good listen, though. It will be. Thanks, man. Well, I hope listeners agree. We'd love your support um, for the podcast. You can do that by subscribing, giving us a good rating on your podcast app, uh, re- even dropping a review. That all really helps. So, if you like the podcast, we'd love it if you did that. But mainly, just thanks for listening. And here's my conversation with Catholic theologian and historian and author of the book, The Blue Sapphire of the Mind, Douglas Christie. Douglas, thank you so much for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, where do we find you today? You're, you're, a, you're a Southern California guy, but I know a lot of professors I know because of COVID, have thought, well, now would be a good time to move to Paris because I'm teaching on Zoom or something like that. I know some of my kids, my kids are in college and some of their professors have done that. Are you, did you stick tight during COVID in LA or have you moved around? Um, I mean, we, we stuck tight uh, to a great extent, but we've also um, been spending time in a little place called Patagonia, Arizona, oh, southern okay. southern Arizona. Nice. Um, about an hour south of Tucson, 20 minutes north of the border. Um, and so because of COVID, we've been out here uh, for some of the time, and that's where I am now. Okay. Very cool. I've never been to Patagonia, Arizona. What's what, what's it like? What, what do you see when you look out your window? Well, it's, it's mountainous. It's about 4,000 feet. So there's that, and it um, it happens to be one of the great um, places of convergence of bird life in um, in North America. So um, you you have just an extraordinary um, kind of outpouring of of birds, both both those native to the place and migrants um, mm-hmm. coming through here, and um, it's just. Quite, it's extraordinary, beautiful. Beautiful. It's 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 off the beaten track. Uh, I, if you asked a lot of Arizonans, where is Patagonia? They they will probably never even have heard of it. So, hmm. um, it's it's a uh, high desert, high Sonoran desert, uh, mesquite trees, um, rugged mountains, um, dry of course, except for the monsoon season in August. Mm. When it just uh, begins pouring rain and and the arroyos fill up and um, well, there's a taste. That's awesome. You must have. Uh, do you have Rio Grande turkeys walking around out there? 
<laughs> we do have turkeys. I didn't. I'm not sure if that's the particular kind of turkeys we have. I, I think that's probably the subspecies of turkey you've got there. I'm guessing. Well, there's a thing called, I mean, I'm not really into this kind of thing. Uh, I don't really hunt for sport. I, I more hunt for, I don't know, connection to nature and also for sustenance. Yes. But there are people who do a thing called the grand slam of turkeys in which they shoot one of each subspecies. And then you can also do a world slam because there's some turkey in the Yucatan Peninsula that's very hard. It only lives there, and I don't know. It's not really my deal, but I do I do know people who head to the mountains of Arizona to hunt turkeys. Yes. So I don't know. Uh, if you ever hear a shotgun blast, that might be that might be what you're hearing. Well, it sounds like an absolutely gorgeous place. It is. It is, and very quiet and still. Yep. I I sometimes thought as I was reading your book or actually listening to the audiobook um it might have been a somewhat challenging book to write in Los Angeles. And Lo- Loyola Marymount where you teach is not just in Los Angeles but it's like right by LAX. It's it's a noisy part of LA. LA is a noisy place in general but I I I mean I get tell me if I'm wrong. I I lived in Pasadena which is kind of, you know, the the garden of Los Angeles, Pasadena, right. Altadena or whatever. But even that was too much for me. And I, as soon as I graduated, I fled back to Minnesota. Yes. Um, yeah, no, it is. You're, you're absolutely right. Los Angeles is a vibrant, um, often overwhelming, but also, you know, beautiful uh, city. I, I love Los Angeles. And as far as, you know, whether it would be more difficult to write this book there than somewhere else, I, I, I couldn't say. I mean, I also wrote it in the midst of, um, you know, ongoing family life with mm-hmm. five kids and everything that you can imagine that comes along with that. So um, whatever your listeners might have in mind when they... <laughs> think about a contemplative space that that wasn't it that's not right. where that's not where the book came into being although i i i obviously i do treasure silence and stillness and i do spend time in contemplative spaces um but that's not where my life is my life mm-hmm. is with my family and with my students and it's in los angeles and um maybe that's just a note uh, you know, in, in passing here to, to kind of open up the question of how and where and in what way does contemplative practice, can contemplative practice take hold in our lives? And I think there still are some um, ideas or prejudices that it, 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 it can only happen in solitary places or, or, or wild places or mm-hmm. in monasteries. or And, and of course, those places can help cultivate stillness and mm-hmm. uh, depth of spirit. But most of us live in, I think, different kinds of spaces than that and more complicated spaces and have to navigate contemplative uh, practice in the midst of all that. And that's mm-hmm. certainly true for me. How old are your kids? 
Um, they mm-hmm. are 27 is the eldest mm-hmm. uh, daughter. And then twin girls, 24, 24, twin mm-hmm. boys, six, 17 now and 17. So that's. Wow. Couple yeah. pairs of twins. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Well, my kids are kind of in that same range. Three kids ranging from 21 to 16. Um, and I know that, yeah, that's interesting. I, I think, you know, it's one of the things we can definitely talk about. I think you're right that there are, you. I think you use the word prejudices. I mean, people do when they hear the word contemplative spirituality or something like that, they have a, a, a particular, you know, a particular image comes to their mind. I'm, you know, you think of um, Thoreau going out to Walden and I always, <laughs> I liked, to, I liked, I was, I'm actually listening to the, the next audiobook in my queue after listening to your audiobook was, uh, is Walden. And mm. it, I'm reminded, you know, it's funny things like he says he reads the newspaper every day. Um, and because it, that's what his food comes wrapped in. And then the the newspaper still has the the odor of the food in it, and he has some little reflection on that. But I think he's missing the forest for the trees. The fact that the guy's food was delivered to him every day. So, and you know, I like to remind students that uh, Thoreau's mom visited the cabin every week and took home his laundry, washed it for him, and then returned it to him. Yes. So he was not. He was maybe not quite. Um, St. Anthony in the cave, you know, yes. he was a little more, his, his cosmopolitan nature um, maybe seeped out there to, to the cabin on Walden Pond. Yes. Um, well, I, your, your book, The Blue Sapphire of the Mind, and we'll have, you know, a link to your site and the book in the show notes for, for this podcast. Um, what, what, drew you to write a book like this? And I, I mean, I think your book stands alone unless there's other things I've missed. That's really a, a, a map for a, what you call a contemplative ecology. What, uh, what brought together for you these sources of contemplative Christian spirituality and, you know, the, an ecological understanding of creation? I think, honestly, in the first instance, it was some uh, unconscious desire for healing in myself, for a a healing of some parts of my own life that had um, become separated in a way that probably wasn't healthy or sustainable long term. And... I guess the best way I could describe that would be to say that um, although perhaps like most children growing up, I had some deep feeling for the natural world. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I uh, lived under the shadow of Mount Rainier and in proximity to Lake Washington and the Olympic Mountains and, and the Cascades. And I... I just absorbed all that into my consciousness and, mm-hmm. and, you know, in the, in the sort of naive way that children do. And, um, later in my life, when I, I think when I began to become more 
spiritually conscious and aware and 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 hungry i i found myself drawn to contemplative writers and practitioners and i think without realizing it i absorbed into my consciousness a kind of a an otherworldliness that i mm. that i read in some of these texts that seemed to place uh all the emphasis on uh on the transcendent other mm-hmm. and um and relatively little uh, uh emphasis on on the body on uh, uh on 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 the matters of 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 the tactile material world um it, it was a functional dualism i think is what i absorbed into my spiritual practice without realizing this was happening and um and i think at a certain point i found myself a, a little starved for the for the material and the tactile and the and and what we would call theologically at least catholics do the sacramental and mm. Um, and although that was always available to me in liturgy and in, in, in the sacraments, and, and I, I, I had some experience of this and some knowledge of this, and um, for some reason, I, I, didn't, um, I didn't go there initially. I went uh, outdoors, and I found myself spending time um in the in the in the desert um mm-hmm. the Mojave Desert among uh, other places but also in the Channel Islands off the coast of southern California and um and up in the the Lost Coast in northern California places that I found myself being drawn to and needing for reasons I couldn't easily even explain to myself. And, yeah. and it also, it also changed my reading. I, I, I mean, I'm trained as a, as a historical theologian or a, a, I guess you'd say that the, the history of, of Christian spirituality is the area I was, I was trained in. Um, I, I kind of left a lot of that to one side for some years and, began pretty much only reading poetry, natural history, biology, and something about that process of that, that reading and meditating on that work and spending more time outdoors returned me to my own embodied self and began to I feel, looking back, began to create a more whole spiritual practice mm-hmm. that included the the palpable material world without denying what the mystics have always hungered for, which is this radically other. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it was it was trying to work some things out for myself, honestly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, you start the book. The framework for the book, it seems to me, is is your definition of contemplative ecology as your quote is identifying our deepest feeling for the natural world as part of a spiritual longing, which I think, you know, to say that what draws us outdoors into wild spaces is a, is a spiritual draw. It's not just purely a biological draw. Oh, we need to reconnect with the natural world around us. But it's it's actually something also that that's spiritual in nature. Seems to me a like a very uncontroversial thing to say, and yet it doesn't seem to me that many people have said it. So I really appreciate that that framework. Um, and it does seem to me that a lot of people. Well, I mean, one of the ongoing theses of this podcast and of my, I think of probably the latter half of my adult life, you know, work in in theology is that as organized religion declines and really, I mean, I'm thinking probably dies before our eyes in the next generation or two, that one of the ways that people will continue to fill those spiritual longings in their lives will be to go outside, to engage in outdoors activities, to hike and bike and hunt and and um, paint and do all sorts of things that bring them into contact with the natural world, which as you right in the book you know the the modern modern life has really stripped us of that in a lot of ways pushed us indoors and pushed us into cities like Minneapolis where i live in los angeles where you live and it it takes a more um we have to be more deliberative about finding ways to get outdoors to places like you know, I, I leave tomorrow morning for the North Woods of Minnesota to plant trees all weekend. And, you know, you're in Patagonia, Arizona. We we have to um, be deliberative about that. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. And, and at the same time, I would say that um, it's I, I do believe it's a, a problematic uh, dichotomy to imagine that and, and, and I'm not saying that you're suggesting this, but that that wildness is only found in faraway places. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, one of the things that I think the present moment asks of us is to rekindle our relationship with the wild world in urban spaces. Yeah. And th- this seems like a contradiction to many people, but it, it it has to also take hold there or else it doesn't mean that much or else it becomes mm-hmm. a kind of occasional thing that happens when we go away from where we usually live instead of something we feel and care about uh, in the, in the urban places where most of us uh, live. I, I've been, um, I've been very influenced by, um, the work of Jenny Price and others who are arguing for a much, much more integrated sense of wild nature as being mm-hmm. part of our, the fabric of our lives. If we will only open our eyes 
and notice it and come to care about it. So I, I cherish the impulse in contemplative traditions that honors um, the need for occasional withdrawal into quiet places. And I think if we ever lose that, we will lose something that, that really is irreplaceable. At the same time, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that the contemplative has to be able to be discovered in the fabric of our lives, where mm-hmm. we where we live. And it can't be something that's only for a few yeah. who have the ability to get outside and enjoy it. It has to be democratic. It has to be inclusive. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say to your point, it is a it, it's quite a position of privilege to say uh I have I I have this, you know, escape hatch to Patagonia, Arizona or to uh Brainerd, Minnesota, you know, where I have a cabin in the woods. Uh I I acknowledge that's a privileged position to be in and many you know the vast majority of people don't have that and the vast majority of people who live in big cities we probably as theologians need to work to give them the tools to to connect with nature where they are in those cities but that i do think that's a challenge well it is a challenge but i mean i you wouldn't be uh having this podcast if you weren't up for a challenge or two, would you? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, hey, Douglas, I want to ask you, I'm just so fascinated by the Desert Fathers. And I want, uh, I think probably most listeners are, if if not completely unaware of them, at least know very little about them. Because in the West, uh, whether we grew up Catholic or Protestant in the in the West, we don't really pay that close attention to those early Eastern monks. I think people are more familiar with the Western monastic tradition of uh, you know Benedict, where groups of people get together and live in monastic communities, but they're preceding that there was this tradition of these kind of wild men and some women primarily men you and i will say that i just want to take a little non sequitur here about your audiobook because that poor guy he pronounced athanasius different i think every time that name came up he did not he had never seen the word philokalia before um, I think he got Evagrius right most of the time, but I did feel for him because you've got a lot of theological uh, uh, terms in the book, of course. I mean, even the, the chapter titles are in Greek. So I did, I, I felt for that guy because he, he was kind of struggling through some of those, uh, some of those names, particularly Athanasius. I mean, the first time he said Athanasius, I don't know. What he where he put the syllable, but it wasn't where I've ever heard the the uh, the accent <laughs> on the syllable. Um, and you said somebody recently played for you the audio book as a as a little trick on you. Yes. And yes. what you th- what you think? Well, I rec I, I don't listen to audio books very often. To be perfectly honest, I 
I received a free copy of, uh, I think it's Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See, mm-hmm. and listened to that on a couple of road trips. And by some, which a beautiful, what a book, beautiful, what a book, beautiful book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, the same person who created that audio book or read that book for, for audible.com or whoever does mm-hmm. it read my book. So mm-hmm. the first thing I noticed was I heard his voice and I thought, I, I recognize this voice. Mm. That's that, it's that guy. <laughs> and what's he yeah. reading? And it took about a paragraph before I realized he was reading something that I had written. So yeah. uh, it was, uh, it was meant to be a little joke on me and it was uh, successful and it made me smile. And of course it's a little odd to hear yourself being read back to yourself. So I, I don't think yeah. that's an experience I'm going to have anytime soon, but, but, but students who I've, I mean, I, I, I've only once in all my, the last few years since the book was published, have used it in a class. Um, and I didn't know it was an audio book. So then students told me that they were listening to it. And, yeah, they, I, I, I have students who like to listen to audiobooks at you know two times the speed while they're also reading the book. Um, and I will tell you my own experience of uh, I insisted on reading my own book for audible.com. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, well, I'm, I'm a public speaker. I preach all the time. I know how to use my voice. I'm going to read my own book. I insisted on it, Douglas. And it's so, it sounds so terrible. And I so regret that. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, wow. Yeah. It was, I mean, really in a little booth with a, a sound engineer, just like Brandon is sitting here listening to us, you know, um, stopping every time I, uh, oh, he scolded me one morning because I drank coffee before I came, and he could tell in my. He told me I couldn't drink coffee, and I'm like, "Are you kidding me? I'm gonna, I'm definitely gonna drink coffee every morning." But I'd get there, and then he had a bag of green apples in the little in the little room, and he made me take a bite of a green apple whenever he felt it sounded like cotton mouth, and. I just thought I'll never do this again. This was it was way too hard. So just be glad they they obviously Oxford Press obviously hired one of the top uh you know voice recording guys for your book. That's that's high praise. So good. Well, it, yeah. Yeah. Um back to these desert fathers. I I've read some. I think you've read even quite a bit more. Can you paint a picture for us of who these people were, what drove them into the desert, how they lived. I mean, I can't help but, you know, um, visions of uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian come to mind of <laughs> of the the guy in the I don't know if you know that movie but there's a guy yes. in a yeah a guy in a pit who's taken a vow of silence and yes. uh, Brian jumps in and lands on his foot and he, anyway if I can if you can erase that vision from my mind that, that, no that's that's pretty much it right there <laughs> yeah who were these crazy people who went out in the desert what drove these very early Christians out to away from cities and out into these harsh landscapes? Okay, so I, maybe I'll try to approach or just pick one response. of them. Yeah, tell us about one of them. No, 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 no. It's not that, but but it's it's partly the one of the benefits of of 
doing historical study, and, and, and part of why it's important is you begin to realize that there was a context. And even, even mm-hmm. I know you're being a little bit facetious, who were these crazy people and so forth? And yeah. sure, you, we can use that kind of language, and it's not entirely, uh, you know, off the mark in some ways. But there was throughout the um, ancient world in the second, third, fourth centuries, there was this emerging ascetic culture, not always monastic, but ascetic. And you saw it take hold uh, among uh, Jewish ascetics at Therapeutae, and and there were Neoplatonic ascetics. There were um, the Essenes, of course, before them. Um, there were um, uh, devotees of the Temple of Serapis. So, Asceticism, can you define can you define asceticism for for us? Well, in in broad strokes these are uh, people who engage in various practices of what we might call renunciation mm-hmm. or or relinquishment of uh, that would involve practices of of uh, living apart from others sometimes uh being becoming celibate um uh, being very careful about the intake of of food, fasting, for example, um, engaging in certain kind of meditative practices. Uh, th- these were not all the same kinds of practices because they weren't arising from the same uh, religious symbol system. But I think part of what I'm saying is that what seems to us to be so odd when we look mm-hmm. at it from our vantage point was part of a cultural reality mm. in late antiquity that was uh, touching into people's lives in a variety of ways, arising from a range of religious symbols and symbol systems. And it also had, I would say, this is the, the second thing I would say about it, is it had a social meaning. And mm. this is something that historians... Uh, Principally, I would say Peter Brown, whose work was so important mm-hmm. in helping to reframe the question of who the early Christian monks were, um, he helped to situate them within a social reality, which is the social reality of the of the late Roman Empire and mm-hmm. the the political pressures and the social pressures that people were living under, and so that the the very act of anachoresis to use one of the greek words that that you know defined the movement or withdrawal the withdrawal right. sometimes into a intentional community we to use language we might might prefer today or sometimes out to the edge of a village along the nile valley or sometimes yes out in the desert Th- this was sometimes these were sometimes provoked by social pressures. People mm-hmm. needed to uh, get out of trouble that was coming their way mm-hmm. from the tax collector, from uh, the the Roman authorities who were exerting more and more pressure on these towns and villages. So anachoresis has a important spiritual meaning in early Christian monasticism, the 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 withdrawal into solitude, but it also has a social meaning and even a political meaning. Hmm. And 
I think this is something where once you begin to f- think about it in, in these terms, you start to feel the complexity and sometimes, yes, the, the profundity of the, of the, of the gesture. And mm. it, it used to be the case that I think we would tell the story of early Christian monasticism a, a little bit more simply and say that, that the, the, the monks followed hard upon the martyrs. This is a, a narrative yeah. that, that most people who studied any kind of church history will have encountered. And it's not to say that that's completely inaccurate. Uh, we had the, we had the, the red martyrs and then we had the white martyrs. This is how they were thought of. Well, that's part of the story that we need to tell about the, the emergence of this movement, but it also needs to be situated within its own uh, very complex social, cultural, political context. And the meaning of it in part derives from that context. So when Anthony goes out into the desert, the, the story that's told about him, St. Anthony of Egypt, the, 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 the so-called first Christian monk, uh, at least in terms of, of the, the myth of early Christian monasticism, his narrative is told by Athanasius in, in uh, beautiful narrative terms as a response to a call. He, mm-hmm. he goes into a church. He hears the scriptures being read. He, he feels that they're being addressed to him alone. And it, it's Matthew 19, 21, if you would be perfect, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And he takes this to mean he should go into the desert. Now, a, a sensitive reader might ask, well, why did he <laughs> interpret it that way? You know, yeah. and, and the, but, but this is also part of the art of storytelling. This is, this is what, this is the story that Athanasius wanted to tell about his hero, St. Anthony. And, and there's some truth in that story. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the monks did listen carefully to the, to the word of God. They did respond to the impulse to go deep into, uh, you know, what the gospels call the one thing necessary. This has always been a, a very critical part of the, of the Christian contemplative tradition, but they were also doing it in a, in a world that was very challenging they were often um, existing right on the edge of of poverty. Um, they were they were scrambling to 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 create uh, with their hands um, baskets and other um, other uh, products that they could trade or sell for food. They often lived very close to the villages that they had left and. And would regularly return to those villages, and there was a there was quite a complicated exchange between the the so called monks in the desert and the, the the folks who were still living in the Nile Valley. And if right. you if you go to Egypt today, and I, I don't want to draw a direct analogy here, but if you were to travel to Egypt today and go to a place like Saint Macarius. Uh, near Cairo, you would see something very similar. Mm-hmm. The monastery exists at some distance from the city. It's accessible, however, by any of the 
Coptic Christian families who wish to come out on Sunday afternoon and visit with the monks and and seek counsel and have a picnic with them. And hmm. you'll see the monastery filled with families and children. And so this exchange between those who withdrew into solitude and those who continued existing in the, and I'm using scare quotes here, the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is is much more complicated and interesting than we sometimes uh, allow it to be when we tell the story of Nazism as a, you know, the, the, the rejection of the world, a refusal of the world, um, a flight from the world. And again, those those elements are all there in early Christian monasticism. I'm not saying they aren't, but I think the reality that begins to emerge when you look at that early monastic world is, is more complex and interesting. And, and in some ways gives us more purchase on thinking about contemplative life in a more complicated way and a more interesting way. And, so the radical character of it can't be denied, but I think sometimes we we kind of um, miss an opportunity to engage it ourselves by painting it a certain way, that, mm-hmm. that, that these are crazy people standing on top of pillars or wandering into swamps or living in caves. Yeah. What could that possibly have to do with us? And... Uh, I think it does have to do with us, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, it helps if you situate them in their social world. Yeah. I mean, the stylites, the, the, the ones who sat on top of columns, that one does seem a little out there to us. But, you know, to your point, uh, that in my reading of the monastics, they've never looked down on those of us who stay in quote unquote the world. But I've always just said my vocation is different. My vocation is to do the work of prayer, you know, in the in the monastery or in the cave or whatever it may be. And it's just a beautiful picture you paint of these people. I would I would absolutely love it. And you I know you write about it in the book, but I would I would love to witness it for myself of these, you know, people coming out on the weekends and and having a you know picnic with the monks and asking the monks for spiritual advice and things like that, which just shows they're yeah they're not looking down their noses at the rest of us, but they're just seeing di- different people have different vocations. Yes, and and we're we're all related to each other mm-hmm. as part of a larger koinonia, and um, that also the the, the longer I study these traditions and, 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 and the more contact I have with living monastic communities, the more critical that communal element begins to appear to me. And, um, and I think it's actually one of the gifts that monasticism and these monastic traditions uh, give to us, the, the reminder that what you're working out in solitude is a way to learn how to love your fellow human beings. And that, you know, whether you're a monk or someone living 
within a family situation or a young person, uh, you know, just getting started in life, that is a question that keeps coming up with ever greater urgency. And just as an aside, I, I just, you know, I just finished a semester teaching students all online as we, as we've all mm -hmm. been doing. And I, I, I just feel for them so much, but they, they showed up faithfully. They, 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 they leaned into the work. In, in, in one case, it was a semester long course on the desert, if you can believe that. And it's a, it's a class that usually involves taking students out into the desert, which we weren't able to do this time, but they, they, they gave themselves so fully to the work. And one aspect of the work that really, um, struck me so deeply this time around was their, the, the, the hunger that a number of them expressed when they got close to the, the contemplative dimension of the, of, of our desert work or, or, you know, the traditions of the, uh, the, the, the mystics who will sometimes describe, uh, the, the heart of contemplative practice as entering into the abyss of God. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. of course, this feels daunting to anyone who looks at this and it feels daunting to me. It feels daunting to them. But what they, what they would often express was how hungry they were to become more vulnerable to themselves, to God, to others. Mm -hmm. And so this, this, this very, I think, profound relationship between entering into solitude to struggle with yourself and to come to know yourself on the one hand and discovering a capacity that maybe you didn't even know you had for love, mm -hmm. for openness, for compassion. This is, I, I don't, believe this has lost any of its <laughs> yeah. its meaning or urgency and and it's also part of what i think can we can see translates it's not just about whether you're a monk or not a monk it's whether you you're a human being who wants to deepen your own humanity and become more open and free and mm. so this is this is also part of why these traditions keep I think speaking to those of us who inhabit a very, very different world in the, in the, in, in the, mm -hmm. you know, the year 2021. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to, um, and, and you can, I've kind of got two questions I'd like to get to, and maybe you can even weave them together. But one of them is how, what, having said what you've said about, these early monastics and all the study you've done on them, what, how that has taught you, what you've learned from them, how you've incorporated that into the, into, you know, a contemplative ecology, but also on a finer point, I thought one of the most intriguing parts of your book was your talk of grief and grieving. Here's why, here's why. Um, I 
see, particularly in social media, but also in literature and in the newspaper and stuff like that, I see a lot of anger, even bordering on rage about our denigrating climate and what we have done to it and uh, our use of carbon and melting um, uh, you know, ice caps uh, um, that the, the smog in China and the fires in India blotting out the sun. And I mean, we could go on and on, right? We, we've got a, a list longer than we could say on everything that's going wrong with our natural environment and the planet and what we have done to it. And I, my point is I see a lot of anger. And what you suggest in the book is that instead of being angry about it, we should grieve uh, and that grief is, you know, can be part of this contemplative ecology. So I'd love to hear you reflect on that a little bit, or maybe even, you know, what, what if you've thought more about that in the, you know, five, six years since, since you wrote the book? Um, well, thank you for the question. It's a, it's a difficult question. And I, I, first of all, would not want to suggest that people shouldn't feel angry or even outraged. Um, I think that often um, is, is one way of expressing just the depth of the, of the crisis that we find ourselves moving through. So um, if I lift up grief in the, in the book, I think it's, it's part of uh, just a way of trying to probe the question about whether we're still capable of feeling mm. and expressing our feeling of, of all that we're losing. And I, I know that I, I was, you know, it's not only the, the, the ancient monastic tradition of penthos or, or sometimes called Greek is called katanuxis. It's a, it's a, the gift of tears. The, the idea that spiritual healing and renew and renewal can't, really happen <laughs> except through tears. Now, I mean, I, that's, that's a bit of a strong statement. If, if, if anyone's listening and they're saying, you know, I don't cry. Um, you know, it's not, it's, I'm not, I'm not trying to be categorical about it, but it's, it's the insight that unless you can access your own deepest feelings about things, any chance you have for transformation of your own awareness and perhaps a, a kind of a shift in your own ethical orientation, it's going to be short-lived and it's not going to go deep enough. So mm. what, what attention to grief and mourning and tears, I think is just, is meant to lift up is the question of how deep we're prepared to go into our own lives and into the losses that we are encountering, um, not for the sake of um, kind of dwelling only on the losses, but so that we can relocate ourselves in the, in the midst of the, these losses and maybe find one another again, you know, in, in our shared loss. And I think sometimes the alternative is either to skate along the surface or to keep 
our feelings about what we're losing at a safe distance so we won't uh, feel more than we want to feel about it and, and perhaps find, find ourselves overwhelmed. But it, it doesn't, it, it, it's not enough is, is, the, is the feeling. And, and I think the kind of spiritual honesty that you see in these ancient monastic traditions is challenging that. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's inviting an honest reckoning with the real. And um, let's be honest, most of us would prefer not to do that if we could at all avoid it. It's, 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 it's painful. It requires courage, empathy, openness, mm. which we all have, you know, mm-hmm. to some degree. We have it in us, but to access these things and to live out of a, such a deep vulnerability, I think for many of us, it's just, it's just a, a huge challenge. And we, and we, we kind of um, hesitate before that challenge. I do. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't. And yet it seems to me that what we long for is this greater vulnerability and openness to, to the living world, to one another, to God, and that they're all part of a single fabric of, of, mm-hmm. of being. And we've cut ourselves off and stopped feeling things. And so this is one part of a, of a much larger process of renewal. And I, but I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that it's, it's critical. Yeah. That's so great. I I completely agree and um have have actually spent a lot of time thinking about that and and one of the things I thought of as I as I read or listened to the audiobook was um and I've done some writing about this myself that is not yet published but um coming to I mean, to coming to terms with my own mortality, the, the practice of hunting has done like the church never did in bringing me, hmm. that's my memento mori, is, is um, a dead, you know, a dead deer in front of me that I will then go on to spend the next hmm. six hours butchering and vacuum sealing and putting in my freezer and taking out over the course of the next year to feed my family or or my dog retrieving to me a dead pheasant that I've shot. And there's this constant reminder of death and mortality before me. And there's even some grief. You know, there, to be honest, there's some grief in it as well um, when I'm most honest with myself, which I guess brings me to my last question before I let you go. And that's... Um, uh, it's about prosoke. It's it's about paying attention because if we've if we've separated ourselves, if we don't feel anymore, as as you've just said, or we we are less apt to feel and and to really be vulnerable in the modern world, and if we have removed death 
for the most part from our everyday existence and kind of swept it away into into funeral homes as opposed to you know how it used to be for 300,000 years of of human existence where people would see deceased people and animals all the time we also i think struggle to pay attention and we're constantly being distracted and I'm sure you see this in your undergrads and in your own children. I sure see it in my children. And I mean, it's in, it's in myself too, but it seems to be progressing with each generation. So I wonder, you know, in, in paying attention, particularly as it relates to nature and ecology, do you have practices in your own life or practices you can recommend from the tradition that will help us to pay better attention? Great question. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that I would want to hold myself up as a model of uh, someone who is uh, so great at paying attention. I mean, I think I've gotten better. Mm-hmm. And I think something that I've discovered is that, and, and it, maybe there's an, uh, there's an analogy here, I think, to to prayer. And I know that uh, for as long as I've been trying to practice contemplative prayer, sometimes I, I engage in this practice with uh, my friends at Redwoods Monastery and sometimes in, in my own kind of daily life, I can feel my restlessness right there, right there. You know, it's always present to me. And, um, and I think I, have found over time that simply opening up the space for slowing down and paying more careful attention, even though I don't feel like I'm really doing it very well or that I'd rather be doing something else, distracting myself, it has, it has had an effect on me. And I, I think I have over time if I could put it this way, become less fidgety, more, hmm. um, more capable of slowing down and just enjoying things. And I, th- I think the note of enjoyment for me is kind of important here because I, I know that there can be this um, sense that paying attention and learning to pay attention is yet another thing that we should be doing better than mm-hmm. we're doing, you know? And, and so then it, it, it turns into this kind of, it's a, here's a new form of exertion. Now yes. I'm really going to grit my teeth and pay attention. And something that I, I, I mean, I, I did, I feel like I learned this, a, a lot of this I learned from uh, hanging out with monks who just, who would amazingly, enter into the space of prayer and hang out for long periods of time. And I, I use the word hanging out somewhat facetiously, but mm-hmm. I, I think you'll know what I mean. It's like yeah. w- what, what the Buddhist tradition sometimes calls wasting time conscientiously. So then, then you, I mean, it, I think for a lot of us, it takes, it takes some, effort initially to even allow yourself not to just feel completely foolish 
mm-hmm. sitting in this way or breathing or just letting time gather without any apparent purpose. Even if it's five or 10 minutes, it can just feel like an eternity. Yeah. And then I think this is part of what starts to happen. And, and this is where I feel like um, I've learned so much from the students I work with and, and also just my children and people in my life. Like, okay, so then what do you enjoy giving your attention to? Mm-hmm. Like, ask yourself that and, and, and maybe allow yourself to enjoy that a little bit. And then mm-hmm. the most amazing thing happens is that enjoyment is itself infectious and you find yourself enjoying things more mm. and yeah. not just the thing you initially set out to enjoy, but the other thing next to it. And, and, and it, and it just kind of spills over. And so I, I, I know it feels, it, it could feel frivolous in a, in a world that's is as deep in crisis as our world is to say that part of what I think it would help us all to learn is how to enjoy the life we've been given in, in all of its minute particulars. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a, I think it's a very beautiful contemplative practice to slow down and enjoy what is unfolding before you mm-hmm. and not to wish for something else, not to wish it was, it was what, what your neighbor has or mm-hmm. what, what you saw uh, on YouTube or <laughs> like it's Thomas Merton says in, in one of his, the, the last talks he gave to the, to the sisters at, at, at the at Redwoods, in fact, he was he was visiting California, and he gave this beautiful talk on prayer, and uh, very simple, very very direct. But at one point, he he contrasts the idea of um, the the engineering metaphor that we sometimes imagine or or employ to think about how we quote build a life of prayer, mm-hmm. and he says we we just have to get away from this idea. Of, of that image altogether. And we have to realize that we already have all that we seek. Everything mm-hmm. has been given to us in Christ. And all we have to do is sink into that reality, enjoy it and live into it. And just that note of not having to strive after but to um, receive as a gift what's being given to us. And I, and I realize even as I'm saying this, this, this could sound so cliched, you know, no, life is a gift. I think and, it's great. But, but it's, it's just the, it's the simplest, I believe it's the heart of contemplative practice yeah, is yeah. opening yourself to gift and actually allowing yourself to be nourished by it. And then, and then you become this, Amazingly, you become this nourished person who other people find it nourishing to be around. You know, yeah. it, 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 this yeah. is what I mean. It it's, it spills over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
That's beautiful, and I don't think it's cliche. I think it's something we all need to be reminded of all the time, and I'm glad you've done just that. And and it's a, it's a really a perfect place to end our conversation. I, I think that's exactly right, and I think your book, you know, does a, a very fine job of reminding us of those things. So, thank you for the book, and thank you very much for coming on the podcast and um we just wish you all the best in between patagonia and los angeles thank you and thank you for your good work on the podcast and in your life i i mean i can just tell from this conversation um just how how carefully and deeply you're attending to your own life and, and also to the life of the community that's part mm-hmm. of what this podcast clearly uh you know, is, is helping to address is a, is a larger, wider community of folks who are asking these questions. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And I hope we get to talk again. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yep. Take care. Okay. Thanks.